Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on Body Ecology Living with me, Donna Gates. Our guest today is Dr. Raphael Kelman, and his, well, he's a doctor, as you can tell, and he's also the author of a pretty new diet called the Microbiome Diet. But we've got so much more to talk about than the book. What do the microbiome like to eat? And then some other things that you might like to know from the point of view of a functional medicine doctor. I've been saying for the last couple of years that there's only one kind of doctor to go to today, and that's a doctor who's trained in functional medicine. So let's find out what that means, what uh, Dr. Kelman is a perfect example of the ideal functional medicine doctor. He's very caring. He takes the time to listen. He has a fantastic philosophy about healing. So welcome, Dr. Kelman. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. It's great to be here. Well, we had uh, another interview uh, before for the Healthy Gut Summit that was really successful. We got rave reviews over that summit, and we're going to be doing another one again pretty soon. At least it'll be launched in the winter of 2016, probably January. So I wanted to put up something on our uh, Body Ecology Living podcast for people to get a better sense of who you are. So before we get into the book and more about the microbiome and some of the science, would you just tell everybody about, well, first of all, would you call yourself a functional medicine doctor? It's a good question. I mean, I absolutely practice functional medicine, Donna, um, but I don't really want to be pigeonholed into just being a functional medicine doctor because functional medicine is... Um, a very powerful form of medicine and very effective and definitely has a a role to play. However, there's a lot more to the practice um, of medicine, to the science and art of medicine than just functional medicine. Um, and And there are two components to what I'm saying. One is that Holistic medicine is a very broad term, perhaps too broad, but in some ways it covers a lot of what functional medicine perhaps leaves out. Um, Because functional medicine uh, definitely focuses on improving functionality, looking for deeper causes. I think that it doesn't sufficiently cover the the system theory approach to science and medicine um, and how system theory that scientists use to understand um, nature, how to apply that same principle to um, our physiology, to the human body. And that, it really deserves a new title. It shouldn't just be now functional medicine covers that too. Um, Yes, functional medicine recognizes and appreciates that all systems are interconnected and interact, um, absolutely, but there's a need for the creation of a whole new discipline in medicine that specifically focuses on the interactions of processes and perhaps one day to even um, change our understanding of how these systems really interact. We'll, we'll, we'll see that these neat borders between systems that we've developed and we classified up to this point may be 
less useful or even one day outdated in the future. Um, remember that we we started we, we started with a lot of premises in the practice of medicine, and perhaps when we see the complexity of the interactions of systems and um, genetics um, and gut bacteria, that a whole new model, a whole new way of understanding the body will emerge. Um, so systems theory is definitely something that, um, that I focus on. I focus very much on, um, of course, the microbiome and how um, an ancient uh, pathway to healing has already been outlined for us. Um, we just have to you know, follow follow this path, follow this road, and first of all, we have to clean it up so we can better see where this road is going and where this road leads. And I think that that's going to open up also new new levels of understanding of how, of, of how nature interacts. Um, and we're, we're really at the ground level. The way nature inter, interacts um, is absolutely that under the principle of the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So our energy should be more directed to how we can improve the outcome of of the interactions of systems in certain ways. So that means we have to understand how systems interact, which systems most are are interacting most extensively, and... um, and how do we intervene? How can we make changes so that we can activate the, the principle of synergy that we see in the body? That's why with this conversation with you, Donna, I just want to say about this finish, that, that the focus here on this trifecta of the thyroid and the uh, microbiome and its effects on the, on the brain. You see, I, I personally believe that in order to heal the brain, we have to look outside of the brain. Um, and the brain will be the last place to really look, unless you got a gunshot wound to the head. But the, the, when you have a, a brain issue, we have to work from all the way down because it's the systems beneath that are, are sending messages up to the brain. It's almost like the brain is the, you know, the king or the queen surrounded by a fortress. Um, and the king can or the queen can absolutely serve the whole body, the whole his or her uh, empire, but only if the the people that live in his empire do what they need to do to contribute to the health of the queendom or the kingdom, right? Um, and then, so therefore, to improve the brain, for example. I look at the microbiome before I, I'll do a neurotransmitter test or before even I'll do a fatty acid test. What's the point? I'll look at the, the, the microbiome and I'll look at the thyroid. So those are two systems that are so critical to understand how the brain is working and how to solve so many issues um, neurological issues, of neurodegenerative disorders, and just suboptimal brain function, and also how these two systems play a critical role in energy and um, and fatigue. Um, how these two systems interact 
to could it could it interact in the most optimal way to produce healthy neurological function, optimal neurological function. So that's why I like to, in general, to look at the interactions of systems, and they could be sliced in different ways. Um, and I think that the microbiome and the brain are intricately and inextricably interconnected. And the thyroid also is because it supplies the fuel for the for every for for all the cells is very much part of this triad that is so terribly affected today in our day and age, accounting for the majority of the problems that we're seeing today. Mm, but let me ask you uh, to define systems. Like when you're talking about systems interacting with each other to form, say, a new field of medicine, you're looking, you're talking about the digestive system, the endocrine system, the neurological system, brain and nervous system. Is that that what you're meaning with the term system? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, absolutely, these are the systems that we know today. Mm-hmm. But we're going to find other systems. You know, for example, the cannabis system. Mm-hmm. Um, Oops, you're going to have to define that one for people. You're, I mean, we nobody. Only, right, right, right. <laughs> yes. Well, the cannabis, we have receptors for cannabis, which is a compound in pot in marijuana. We have receptors for many things out in the now, and that's found in the natural world, much of which we haven't even found yet. Mm-hmm. The, what's the interaction of these systems in the brain and the, the interaction of the brain and various processes in the body? Look, you know that here are interactions between the bacteria in the soil and in the food that we're eating, the, the healthy bacteria that's part of the microbiome of the soil and the plants and the microbiome within us. They're in constant communication. There's, there, there is a flow. Unfortunately, it's interrupted and unhealthy in so many, but there is a, a systems theory, um, example of such, a, of such a theory found within the gut bacteria and the bacteria in the soil. The interaction of the, 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 those two systems plays a critical role in our health. Mm-hmm. And so now we have to determine well, what are the elements in these systems and what can we do to improve those elements so that this exchange, um, this flow of communication between these two systems are, are optimal. So then what, what do we see? We see synergy and optimal health that can result. So, you know, um, two things come up. One is that... Um I, I use the term principles, like I took seven of the many, many universal principles out in the world to create body ecology, and there's the principle of step-by-step, principle of uniqueness, we're all very unique. But when I was talking about that and first came up with the concept, just began to explain it that way, what I was basically saying that nature has already set certain things in place. The universe works in a specific way that we can come along and interfere with that and actually get in trouble when we do, but it's what the, the, a wise system of healing would be when you're following what nature has already set into place. And so there's already uh, an interaction between the soil and the bacteria that live there and then our gut, because you know, we, we don't stay planted into the ground as humans. 
we walk around, so we're carrying our soil inside of us, but there's a huge similarity between those two. Then when we eat foods that have grown in that soil, that's causing, that's what you mean by systems? I'm just trying to make, because we started the talk with that, so I was just trying to make sure for people that are, I don't want anybody to get lost right off the bat because we've got some important places to go here. So I just wanted to make sure that people were beginning to get a picture in their mind of, Yes, yes. Well, we know we know we have an immune system. The immune system interacts with the gastrointestinal system, and the gastrointestinal system interacts with um, the microbiome, and the microbiome interacts with the brain, and it interacts with the the adrenal gland and different end the the endocrine system. So these are these are the systems that we know are interacting. Um, but what I'm saying is that that there are many levels of interaction, and they um, and I think in the future we're going to learn more about these incredible interactions between um, various even unknown uh, today of other subsystems in the body, um, and that's that's. That really is what determines, ultimately determines our health, is, pro, is how the various processes in the body are flowing. You know, there are two ways of looking classically. There are two ways of understanding health and disease. One is the ontological approach, which means that disease is a thing. You know, you have a disease. You have heart disease. You have cancer. You have pneumonia, you know, and that it means that it's a specific thing, and that thing either has to be eradicated with antibiotics, it has to be excised, it has to be destroyed. That's one approach. The other approach, classically, is that disease is not a thing, not an ontos, ontological thing, but it's a process. So that way of understanding health and diseases processes within processes, and that's called the physiological approach, obviously, or ecological approach. Obviously, the pharmaceutical company in modern medicine to date is rooted in a very convenient model, and that is that disease is a thing, and here is, you know, the various treatments that are needed to take care of that thing. What I... I feel very, very strongly about the need to make it very clear that these two approaches are the two approaches that we can choose from, but nature is showing us, research is showing us that, and it's painting in broad strokes that we ought to consider changing way of thinking and then understand disease and health in terms of processes within processes and the more we improve the various processes within the body, the healthier we will, we will become. And to always keep our eye on what these processes are all about and how we can improve on them. So, for example, I think, I know actually, because the research is showing this, that we're in the midst of a thyroid epidemic. Um, there are so many... Um, endocrine disruptors in the environment, uh, chemicals that don't have to be at very high levels to um, impact and adversely affect 
the endocrine system, specifically the thyroid. And there are so many um, points along this system, the thyroid, scientists call the thyroid signaling system. It's like a vast um, communication system that we are, we, we've underestimated, we've minimized. It's not like what we were taught in medical school, that it's a very neat system between the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the thyroid, and, and that's it. No, I think that it's a system that we'll marvel at one day, and we're actually going to model our communication systems after what's found in nature once we better understand that. And we see that trend now in, in, in science in general, that they're looking at various insects and other aspects of nature and how nature works to, bet, to create better uh, technology and better um, systems, better, better, better technology. Same thing with the human uh, endocrine system. So therefore, it's, but it's so vulnerable to um, problems and to um, dysfunction that can come from the myriad of endocrine disruptors that we that are all around us. The problem is that it's sometimes so subtle that we just don't pick it up on blood testing. And while in the past the simple thyroid disease of autoimmune, with you know the blood levels. Easier. They were so abnormal, easier perhaps to pick up them. Now we're seeing so many um, issues, so many problems in this vast communication, thyroid communication system, that it, that it can very easily elude routine blood testing because you can have one chemical that causes a problem in thyroid production, and then you can have another chemical that can, you know, and so you would think that the pituitary would then have high, produce a lot of TSH in response, but there's another chemical that may adversely affect the pituitary or TSH production, or it's so subtle that it's not even being picked up by routine testing for many reasons. So we're dealing with so many people with suboptimal thyroid function, and that in turn can adversely affect the microbiome, and it could affect it could directly affect the brain. But it's it's rare that the brain that we have neurological problems because the problem started in the brain. Usually, the problem started someplace south of the brain. And what I'm saying, and I think that like, that's what I like to bring out in this conversation, is that the two systems to look into to, in order to better understand why so many people have neurological disorders, why so many of us, so many people in society are developing neurodegenerative disorders, why so many people are walking around in, in, in a fog, why there's so much brain fog and ADD and, and, and X, Y, and Z, is because these two systems are so vulnerable in in our modern day and age, and they are absolutely um, not functioning well, and it's not being picked up. It's not being picked up by the radar, and it's it needs to um, and and it, this needs to get out there to people that if you are suffering from fatigue. Um, metabolic issues, can't lose weight for no reason, really, that, that something's changed in your metabolism, depression or 
brain fog, your memory is not as good, or if you have um, anxiety, um, unexplained anxiety, or some subtle gastrointestinal issues, um, autoimmune disorders, the place to look is in the microbiome, an ancient system that is so vulnerable and and it's that being attacked on multiple levels because of the environment that it's in today in our in our day and age, and that can then affect um, the brain and well, you know, it can um, affect the immune system. Okay, so a good example I think of that um, I've experienced this all the time is I will do a consultation with somebody and they send me their uh, horm- their latest hormone tests and they're out of balance. And I would never recommend that they necessarily take thyroid medication or uh, go go see their doctor and, you know, ask for bioidentical hormones, for example. Because I think the first place you start is, of course, fix the gut um, and the microbiome. And then, of course, diet is critical for that. So then maybe go back in six weeks or eight weeks or three months, test again. And a lot of times those very same hormones that were out of balance are now back in balance or deal with the stress. Uh, so those, that, that's probably an example of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. Look, the, but remember also, if we're dealing with endocrine disruptors and they're affecting this, this thyroid signaling system, we have to do something to detoxify and to decrease the burden, the toxic, toxic burden. Unfortunately, sometimes it, it, it's been going on for such a long period of time, it's not always easy to reverse. Well, how can but you even think, identify it? Like, it's so subtle. Right. It's not the obvious apparent. Even if you get a thyroid test back and you've got thyroid antibodies, you know, clearly the person's got um, toxins. But but how can you really get more specific than that? I mean, what, what how? Somebody comes to you, they really are exhausted. They do have brain fog. They are depressed and have anxiety. They can't sleep at night. Do you start with the thyroid, and then what? What do you start looking well, I, for? Well, right. Well, first of all, look. Most of the people that come to see me have already um, done routine blood testing, and usually nothing's been found. Now, mm-hmm. um, and that leads to even more frustration. So the first step is to um, question the, the, um, how valid routine blood testing is for you, the individual. For, for, for large-scale screening, they could be very valuable. But for you, the individual who needs to, to heal, we have to seriously question the, the blood testing. Is it missing the problem? Is the thyroid disorder being missed? And I can tell you from from what I see out there is that so many untold numbers of people are being told their thyroid is normal when in fact it's not normal. It's 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 very dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So if you if you miss it on the routine blood testing, what do you do? The same question applies to the microbiome. If anyone even asks about the microbiome, but let's let's Think about it. The microbiome has more, there's more cells in the microbiome than there are in our own body. They outnumber us 10 to 1. And contrary to what people think, these are not our, our enemies. They are critical for our health. They maintain the gastrointestinal tract. 
they maintain and even play a critical role in educating the immune system and keeping it balanced. They have far reaches, far reach all over the body. They have they have a far reach into our genetics, turning genes on and off into the deep recesses of the brain. Wouldn't it make sense to look into the microbiome? To once once you start thinking like that, and you see the power and the effects of the microbiome. You're going, to, you're going to think about, wow, how did we leave this out? This is like nine-tenths of the problem, you know? And, yes, it's being left out in one after the other after the other. It's not, unless someone has really significant, you know, gut issues. And then what are they going to do? They're going to do CAT scans and MRIs and colonoscopies. Well, well sometimes that's needed. It's not going to pick up the microscopic issue that you can't see with the naked eye. So mm-hmm, but what is what? Epi- what do you so, what? okay? So we so here we go. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with two epidemics that are wreaking havoc on the health of America, and it's not even being detected. We have an epidemic, and the test that we're using fails to detect it. If we're even using a test, like with the microbiome, which we're not frequently not looking into at all. So what do we do? My feeling is that. The history is so critical, um, and that's a whole other discussion, but also to look for biomarkers, to look for indirect evidence. And sometimes, and actually frequently nowadays, the indirect evidence could be more powerful than the test that, that aims to look for the direct answer. Now, I'll tell you what some of these um, indirect, biomarkers are, but also to look for provocation testing. So, for example, with the thyroid, the routine blood tests are TSH, that comes from the pituitary, T3, T4, total T3, total T4, free T3, free T4. Total means it's bound to protein. Free means it's just a hormone floating in the blood without not being bound to hormone. And then there's reverse T3 and there's thyroid antibodies, and, and it gets more and more extensive. Nine times out of ten, just TSH and free T4 is, look, is looked at, missing, you know, so many, so many, so many um, cases of hypothyroidism. But there is a more accurate test called the TRH stimulation test, which the medical profession used to use. They stopped using it because they thought they were just using this test because the the regular blood tests were not so sensitive. They couldn't pick up the TSH level unless it was very high, both in someone with a low thyroid, and then the TSH is very, very high because the pituitary is responding and producing a lot of TSH, or, and even in a healthy person, the TSH would be high. And the assays that they had were able to pick that up, um, were, 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 were only able to pick it up when they did the stimulation where they injected TRH, which stimulated the pituitary, and it, in someone with a low thyroid, it went up really high, and they were able to pick it up, and someone with a normal thyroid, it also went up high, and they were able to pick it up. When the assays became better, they said, ah, we don't need this challenge test anymore. Let's just look at routine testing. And that's it. And then it fell out of vogue, and no one's using it. So now, the TRH, luckily, that's, 
injected into yes, the person. He, it stands for thyroid releasing. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that stimulates, it's like looking into the pituitary. It's almost, remember, if the thyroid is low, who's going to know it best? The pituitary who's in charge of monitoring the levels of thyroid in the blood. Now, I can't talk to the pituitary. I can't look into the pituitary, but I can do something else. I can stimulate the pituitary with PRH extracted in the vein. And then 25 minutes later, we see if it goes up very, very high. Now, is this the answer all the time? No. But is it, does it open up a whole new dimension? Absolutely. It's what we call a provocation test to look deeper. That's really what functional medicine should be about. How do you look deeper to see how systems are really functioning with the understanding that routine blood testing is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just what you see at the surface of the, of the ocean. And that could all be very, very calm. But if you go deep down, it could be tremendous chaos. And that's what, how the body often behaves. So it's learning to, uh, to understand nature, to have a sensitivity to understand how the body behaves and acts. And this is not something that you're always going to learn in a lecture or in a conference or even in medical school. But then after you do such a test, you also see, because I've done so many, that for so many people today, the pituitary is weakened also. And that their ability, even if the thyroid is low, its ability to respond is weakened. So now we have multiple issues. Now, with I think we're seeing, I know that we're seeing more pituitary dysfunction today, which is another story. Why? It, it may, I think it's due to inflammation. I think it's due to some um, body, um, mind-body kind of attempt to just lower the um, the, the um, its gears to bring, you know, to go into a semi-hibernation state, which is something we're seeing that's very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome. That it's the body's response to the chaos out there that lets you shut down. You know, it's interesting with chronic fatigue syndrome, the incidence of cancer is lower than in the general population. The body can say enough. We've got to go into hibernation. And the, tr- and the key is to get the body to b- believe that the war is over, the inflammation is gone, the stress is reduced. Let's give this person a, a new chance to get out there and to live a real life. So is, is that is what you would go after first as you are going to look for the cause of inflammation, which could be coming from the gut <laughs> or... Well, yes. No, if if you're dealing, I think that this a lot of inflammation that we're seeing today is a reason why, in addition to the environmental toxins, why we're seeing thyroid issues. And now I'm saying we're also seeing pituitary issues. So the first step is the, the proper diagnosis and to realize that the routine tests are going to miss it. And then to look and then... And, and the TRH is very, very important, the TRH stimulation test. And then the microbiome, the stool testing frequently misses the, how extensive the microbiome imbalance is. Now, 
it, it doesn't mean that it should never be done. There is a place for stool testing. There's a more important place for uh, breath testing to see if there's bacterial overgrowth um, in the small intestine, but also it could, it could be coming from the large intestine as well. And, and frequently the breath test gives us even more useful information. But that could miss things too. There's different ways of looking into parasites and TEs, but you know, that's a very extensive conversation. But this is the, what we all could do is to look for the, 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 the metabolites, the, the, what we call biomarkers. What are the footprints of an unhealthy microbiome? And here we can do the, a, a more updated uh, blood test, and we can look for levels of, let's say, butyrate, even in the blood. You could look for um, um, at levels of B vitamins. You know, many, the gut bacteria, the, the friendly gut bacteria should be producing various B vitamins. If the B vitamins are low, if biotin is low, if B12 is low, um, then there's a good chance the gut bacteria are not, are not thriving. If the zinc level is low, it means that likely means the gut wall is unhealthy. If you can do various in, inflammatory markers like CRP or interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, you can look at LPS levels and other signs of bacterial um, uh, overgrowth. So there are so many indirect um, ways of looking to see if the microbiome is healthy. And, you know, frequently it's not. By the way, for the thyroid, there's also other indirect methods. If, if one's level of carotenoids, the beta carotene or the alpha carotene is sky high, well, it could very well be that the thyroid is low because you need, it's not the only reason, but because you need thyroid hormone to convert beta carotene to vitamin A. If the homocysteine is very high, that may also indicate thyroid. It can also indicate um, ab abnormalities in the methylation pathway um, and a lot of inflammation. Um, and that inflammation could be coming you know, from the gut. So there's so many indirect ways of assessing uh, one's microbiome and one's um, thyroid, the two very, very important um, systems that are causing so many diseases. Okay, at this point, it sounds oh so complicated. We have a new doctor or, you know, some doctor that just got out of medical school 10 years ago even. He's so busy seeing patients. How is he going to learn this? How is he going to be? Basically, what you're describing is kind of a Sherlock Holmes kind of a doctor who looks at the indirect clues, not the obvious clues that so-and-so is stabbed in the heart with a knife and this person owns that knife. And so he must be the person who killed the, you know, the victim. You're, you're saying it's not that clear. You have to go look at all these other markers, all these other indirect clues that it really is the thyroid and that if it is the thyroid, check out the, the gut microbiome. And if and for sure, that's affecting the brain, and then maybe that's why the person's spacey. I know with SIBO, because I, I started traveling tons and tons and back to back, and must have picked up a pathogen, and so I actually think I had SIBO. I didn't take the breath test and all, but I had all the symptoms. And 
one of those symptoms was your brain just forgets words. And I thought, whoa, what's going on with me here? Well, I mean, of course, I've been traveling a lot, and you get exposed to those horrible airplane fumes, you know, all the time uh, when you're traveling. But but I really began to see like, oh, I couldn't digest foods, and I always eat. And so I had to deal with that problem, and I you know, know how to, so I was able to get rid of it. But it was so interesting to me how my brain went when my gut went. And so I totally get what exactly. you're saying, but exactly. I, I'm trying to make, um, I mean, um, there's a, somebody listening to this that knows they won't find a doctor like you. You've treated over 40,000 patients, so that is very important. It's how you know what you know, but how would you train another doctor who has been yeah, too busy yeah. to learn, running his practice, or he's just gotten out of medical school and he really wants to help people, but it's going to be decades before he gets to the place that you're describing here. You know, the, there's an expression that um, the eyes can't see what the mind doesn't know. We, we really have to have a paradigm of a, a certain way of seeing and understanding first. You know, in many ways, your theories are created from the get-go, and they come from an inner knowing. And and then it's either modified, confirmed, rejected, replaced by something else. But but how do you develop good theories, and how do you develop an, an inner knowing? And that really comes from um, a, a true understanding of patterns in nature, in life, on all levels. You know, metaphors, we speak about metaphors. Why do we love metaphors? Because metaphors links one aspect of our lives with another. One way of seeing, one way of experiencing things with another way, you know? Um, so then it, it creates a better understanding and overlap and and a fullness to, to your understanding of life that's in front of you. We live in a we live in multiple worlds concomitantly. We live in a very physical world, right? We have to eat, we have to go to the bathroom, we have we have pain, we have we feel we have sensory experiences. But we also live in a an emotional world. We have emotions, we have feelings. We, we sometimes like to explain our experience from a psychological perspective. So we have a psychological world we live in. Some live in mental worlds too, hopefully most do. So these different worlds that we live in, they, they're not disassociated, they're not from each other. They reflect off each other. And that's why we like to use metaphors because it then gives us clarity, which means that all these worlds are interconnected. So in order to better understand how the body works and how, how we can heal and why we get sick, we, Donna, we have to know everything. We have to, we have to have a very high vantage point. That's why the healer, we have to come from a very high vantage point. That's why healers of the past were also sages, were also shamans, and they had deep, deep wisdom. But we forgot about that 50%. Like, we started this conversation, am I a functional medicine doctor? Well, if functional medicine doesn't include the art and science of healing, then I'm not just a functional medicine doctor. Because 
doctors are also supposed to be healers. And that comes from a different body of knowledge. It comes from knowing all these worlds and how they interact and, pat- and, and patterns of nature. You know why Darwin was, was the one who created, came up with one of the greatest theories? Was because, and he himself said it, because he was an astute observer of nature. He just, without distractions, just let his, let the energy be absorbed into his own. So an inner knowing would emerge. That was Darwin. And that's what's needed today. When, when you have that inner knowing by seeing patterns of nature, how nature heals, how nature behaves on multiple levels, you have to have a broad worldview. If you have no worldview, you're not going to be a good doctor. How to create an in, a, a big worldview is, you know, a three-hour conversation. But that's first, is the worldview, your model, your way of seeing. Then you begin to realize, wait a minute, but why are we seeing problems today? Well, multiple levels. I'm going to skip to one level, and that is environmental toxicity. That is, what are we doing to... To, to ourselves, to each other, and how is it affecting these systems, that will obviously play an important role. If you're only rooted in, you know, disease as a saying, then who cares about these things? But if disease is processes within processes, if that's your worldview, then yes, it means a lot when the environment is poisoned, we're eating on the run mindlessly, not knowing even what we're eating, without any awareness of where it's coming from, where we, 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 we cause a break in an ecosystem that is needed to sustain an inner life and what our role is in that ecosystem. None of this is of any concern, but it is a concern to the healer. So this is what I would teach in, in a medical school of the future of how to train doctors is first and foremost is how do you understand yourself how do you understand nature? And then how do you understand the human body? And then to really and to realize that the, the tools that we have and the testing that we have could, it could very easily miss these processes that could be going awry in such a subtle way. And therefore, we have to change our way of approaching blood testing to have a healthy skepticism to use the test but to expand upon them, to understand, like I once came across a research paper by a guy named Anderson, who, who said there's a difference between the individual reference range and the population reference range. Now, many other doctors may have come across that study, but for me, that study that was rejected by others became a pinnacle of my model, I saved such a paper. And therefore, you poor patient who's sitting in front of me, who's no quality of life, brain fog, depressed, tired, can't lose weight, hardly eating, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now it's been diagnosed with something 10 years later. <laughs> what are we going to do for such a person? And if I, if I use the old model, I could offer very little. But this model is, no, these subtle fluctuations and changes in these processes has led to an altered microbiome, suboptimal thyroid function, 
And yes, you know that there's research to show, and I see this day in and day out, that so many women with cancer, with breast cancer, uterine cancer, if you look closely, unfortunately, what, what are we finding? Hypothyroidism over and over again. That's and probably a major, um, a major uh, cause of infertility, which is staggering today, too. Probably it's under everything. I agree with you. And, and you've used the term suboptimal a number of times. So basically, for people that might not know what that means, is it's something the thyroid isn't working, but it doesn't show up clearly on a test. So you're talking about suboptimal uh, in cancer, for example, it might the thyroid could still look normal, but it isn't. Exactly. And you want to know something? Here's the value of biomarkers. Everything looks normal. But wait a minute. Let's do one more test. We'll do the TRH thyroid as well. Let's do one more. You know what we're going to do? We're going to look at the estrogen metabolites. And how is estrogen being metabolized if the thyroid is low and the microbiome is unhealthy? Well, we're going to see a lot of 16-hydroxyestradiol and not so much 2-hydroxyestradiol. And that's a a well-known risk factor for cancer because 16-hydroxyestradiol is more likely to cause cancer, um, breast cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer than the metabolite called 2-hydroxyestradiol. And lo and behold, when the thyroid is low, even in a subtle way, meaning not picked up with the old model, right, where you have to see these big abnormalities, et cetera, and use only routine testing and not, you know, the more provocative types of challenge testing, you'll see nothing. But then you say, wait a minute, look look at this biomarker. Look at the indirect evidence. It's so profound. Why does this person have such a high abnormal metabolites. And then when you see this over and over again, it becomes obvious that a whole new way of approaching health and disease is in order. And I can tell you that people can um, take on this approach. And and, and this is what you advocate. Um, I, I believe that there are many, many, they can, they can ask for these blood tests um, to be done. Um, but if, and if they can't, if they can't get done, then the symptoms, the history, um, and to connect the dots, the, put the pieces together. You know, there's so much information out there, but how do we stack up all that information to understand what we're seeing today. And the way I stacked up the seemingly contradictory information all over the place is based on a model that I developed from the various things that I've studied over the years to better understand the human story and nature and and everything that we're experiencing today. And then all these abnormalities that we're seeing and all these seemingly unrelated and bizarre abnormal blood tests all begin to make sense. And that's why I like to focus, you know, and that's why I wanted to focus in our conversation, is two systems that are playing a huge role in our health today, and not just in fatigue and depression and anxiety and weight gain, but also in cancer. 
also in multiple sclerosis and also in autoimmune diseases and in Alzheimer's and in um, Parkinson's and other neurological issues. That And these two systems that are far away from the brain are the cause of the brain problem. And also so many people are just not, their brains are just, it's never been opened up or developed. And that even if they have a great IQ and even if they've gone to great universities, but organically their brains were never developed properly because the microbiome was never developed and it's likely unhealthy. And very likely their thyroid has been suboptimal for, you know, for so many years. And I think that if we focus on those two systems, we'll see it will play a very, very important role in improving the overall health of, um, you know, so many people who are suffering today. You know, I'm sure people listening at this point are thinking, I knew it. I knew I had a gut problem. I've always heard that saying, disease begins in the gut. And I figured that I do, even though it's not really, really apparent. I thought I had a thyroid problem, even though it wasn't showing up on tests. What are they going to do about it, though? What do you do when you're working with a patient and you know that those two systems are out of balance? That's why they're depressed and anxious and so on. You're going to start with the gut and you're going to start with the thyroid. What do you do to help this? Okay, so step one is to encourage people, trust your instincts. If you feel something, you're likely right. I don't care what the doctor said or what the blood test showed. If that's what you feel, trust it. Step one. Trust your intuition. Get quiet and still and listen to this inner voice you're saying. Your gut feelings are true. Listen, and listen even more closely to yourself, to your inner knowing, to your body, to, your, to you. Step one, and don't be misled. Go back to the drawing board of what you originally thought. And then if you could ask your doctor for certain blood tests to expand the routine thyroid, perhaps ask for the TRH test, maybe you know, I wish more doctors would be would learn about it, and we're, we're trying to one day make take certain steps to get this test uh, more widely known. And there's been research to support this test. In 2007, there were two incredible studies published in peer-reviewed journals that came to the same conclusion I came to 10 years before. Hey, this TRH test should not be just you know stacked in the in the closets. Let's get it back. And, and now, even more so, because of the types of problems we're seeing. So if you can try to get the TRH, if you can, again, um, ask your doctor for a more expansive routine testing. Ask for beta carotene levels. Ask for homocysteine levels. And then you'll see that thyroid could be a cause of these issues. The microbiome, try to get this, what I call the microbiome uh, blood panel. Um, hopefully you'll get some, you'll have some success. Um, and, and then if you can't get the doctor, let's find a nutritionist, someone who's been trained in this approach, um, who can maybe, if they can't prescribe thyroid hormone, well, let's try other ways. It may be that we'll be able to reverse it and you won't need the thyroid hormone. It all depends on how long the process has been going on. And maybe this could be done 
with a natural practitioner that can really look for the deeper causes, which, you know, we can expound upon at another time. Heal the microbiome, because no matter what your problem is, you will, you can't go wrong if you heal your microbiome. Remember, the microbiome is us. We're nine-tenths microbiome. You don't have to go to medical school to know that that's probably where the source of the problem is. In fact, if you go, went to medical school, you're less likely to know that. So go with your gut feelings that, yes, this ancient ally that's here to help us is likely injured. And that's the reason why we have so many seemingly unrelated problems. So work with a health coach, work with a nutritionist, maybe but a doctor. I think somebody could even start to implement the 4R program that you're talking about in the book, the gut microbiome book. They can start, I mean, you very clearly spell that out in the book. What are the 4Rs for starting to remove the pathogenic you know, what's make the, the toxins, the toxic food you're putting in, the the pathogenic bacteria that's growing in your gut, remove that first. And then, so could you go into the four R's just kind of briefly? Because I think that would make people feel empowered a little bit to think they've got some, you know, not just have to work with the health practitioner, just have to work with the doctor, but they could start doing something right this minute. Exactly true. You could do something right now, this second, to change your life for the better. And, I, I, you know, there, on Amazon, um, many people reviewed my book, over 100, I think. And you can read some of the reviews of people, what they say, and I've ne- they've never seen me. And all they did was read the book and followed the principles of the book. Lives were changed dramatically, not just that they lost weight. Yes, they lost plenty of weight. But you'll see how many issues that you would never have thought related to the gut bacteria improved. Lives were radically transformed for the better because they didn't go to a doctor. They didn't go to a nutrition. No one. They just read the book and followed some basic principles of healing the microbiome. And did in anybody the book, in, the, in the comments there, did anybody happen to mention their brain was working better when they followed oh, the four-hour program? Donna, so many people said... I could finally think clearly. My mm-hmm. brain is working better. Like a light bulb went on. That's the point. Believe it or not, those gut bacteria that are way, way far away from your brain will have the most positive influence on your brain. The gut and the brain, it has to be like thought of together. The four R's. One, you want to remove the overgrowth. I like to look at it as pruning. You, you want to reduce the you know, the excess of the overgrowth of certain bacteria that is adversely affecting the power of the collective microbiome. Now, you could do this based on symptoms, even if you can't get a stool test, even if you can't get this breath test or any other test or any any blood test. If there's a lot of uh, gas, um, loose stools, perhaps not well-formed stools, bloating. If you feel irritable, if you, especially after eating, and the list goes on. Well, I know it's one thing likely. that's kind of interesting is um, if the person is yes. constipated, they're 
the gas that's in there is more likely to be methane. If they're having uh, diarrhea, it's more likely to be hydrogen sulfide. So that's an even uh, a clue True. right there, too. Gas. That's you know, right. Gas is a good that's clue, right. I think. Absolutely. And then you, so you want to remove the unfriendly bacteria. And how do you do that, though? Like, is that okay, what you're so going to use your yeah. yeah, certain various herbs. Um, there's so many out there. Different companies have different uh, combinations of herbs. I mean, I, I like to use um, sometimes oregano oil and garlic and maybe berberin, caprylic acid, grapefruit seed extract. There's a whole list of wormwood, so many wonderful herbs in combination. We have our, I, I made up one called um, microbiome balance, but there's so many different, biocidin is a good product. Um, that's the remove. And at the remove phase, if you do have a lot of bacterial overgrowth, you want to keep the prebiotics to a bare minimum. And we'll talk about that in a second. The second R um, is you want to replace what frequently people are deficient in, enzymes and hydrochloric acid produced from the stomach. If your thyroid is low, and it probably is, whoever's listening to this, that you're probably low in hydrochloric acid production. So then the third R is to re-inoculate. You use probiotics and you use prebiotics. Prebiotics are the nutrients that help the friendly bacteria proliferate. That could include foods that contain inulin, like, like jicama, Jerusalem artichokes, etc., and foods that contain arabinogalactans, like the larch tree and the uh, um, radishes and kiwi. And there are supplements that contain these compounds. Uh, resistant starch is another component. Again, if you have a lot of bloating gas, you have to do this very, very slowly, this phase. And then the fourth bar is to repair the gut wall. Donna, that's such an important component. If we would just repair, we would have like one month, maybe we should do this, one month across America, repairing the gut wall across America. That's a we month I'd say, like to see, the re- gut repair well, month in May or something. The repair yes. gut month. <laughs> The, the government will thank us. We're going to help reduce the trillions of dollars of debt that we have. What would you tell and the people the health to? Of this country. Who, who, what would you have them repairing it with, like glutamine? And what are some yeah, of the yeah. tools you use? Glutamine and zinc carnosine and vitamin A and, you know, uh, acetyl glucosamine and aloe. You know, let's get the whole country to take a little bit of aloe leaf for one month. <laughs> it's going to hurt the gastroenterologist's business for a while, but it's going to help the people. So there's much to do. There's much to do. Those, that for our program, if we implement that, with, you, you could do that yourself. You don't even need anyone. Well, you just need... Well, the repair of the gut, that particular step, you could probably do that early on, really. It's not really the last step. It's a along-the-way step. Yeah, I mean, Donna, I, I frequently do the repair phase early on, especially if we're dealing with autoimmune diseases. Um, you know, Donna, I just want to 
perhaps say, because this is a good point, because this goes back to our original point, you know, am I a functional medicine doctor? I feel that the element of healing is so critical that it needs to be a focus once again. And healing is not always the same as curing, but healing to me is the missing, one of the missing ingredients today. Just like we spoke about thyroid that's missing and the microbiome, so is the art and science of healing. And that also people need to know that, that you can heal yourself on a deep level and transform yourself and to really feel the power of transformation when you realize that there's your, who you are is always potentially evolving and unfolding. And if you're aware of that and you help it grow and always redefine yourself in a more <clears throat> um, a productive way, a more helpful way, a more giving way, a, a way where you're improving this whole that we're all part of by focusing on a better interconnection with the other, the more you are going to be healed. The, the more we focus on redefining ourselves beyond the limited conceptions that society likes to impose on us as to what's important and what's not important, the more we get past that, the more we heal. And I believe so deeply that that has a profound effect on the microbiome. I believe that the microbiome is rooted in the same principles. And the more we focus on that, it's not just some esoteric spiritual exercise about selfless giving or selfless concern for the other, but no, it has a direct impact on the health of all of us, of the whole. And the only way we're going to heal is when we heal as a whole. We're not going to just see a situation where just some are healthy and most are not. We're all in this together, and the more we, we focus on the other, like the microbiome does, in that it's, it's here to really help us. Yes, it gains too, of course, but it realizes that it, it's, it has a much better existence if it's part of this whole that we call the human being. Um, and it's willing to give up so much um, to take a certain, to, to only have a certain seemingly small part. But then it's part of this grand whole that, um, that heals as a whole. And this is a, one of the messages of the microbiome, that it's not survival of the fittest, but survival of the wholest. And I want to add this to, so that people feel more empowerment that the more you tap into that way of thinking, the healthier you will become on a very, very physical level. I see it in my patients all the time. So in other words, so someone's um, outlook on life is impacting how quickly they're going to heal. Absolutely, Donna. And it's, it's, you don't have to be uh, religious. You don't have no belief system. Just 
look at the other. And I can tell you, the more you think of the other and help try to take care of the other, the more your life is enriched and the more you are healed. I see this in patients who are dying. They Maybe we're not cured. We can't cure everyone, but everyone could be healed. And that will play a significant role in your physical healing, too. That's the that's the other 50% that I think needs to be added to all the advances in this conglomeration of conventional and functional medicine. It specifically heals the gut, the gut feelings, and the gut emotions need to be tended to as well. It's not enough if I recommend to, to eat sauerkraut and to eat sukuma and not to tend to the inner layer of the of the microbiome, the inner layer of who we are, which needs for constant renewal and growth and transformation and true healing. I've I've always thought that it's really why we're here. We're here on this earth to heal and to grow. And that's really what this conversation is really, really saying to everybody is that uh, this is what healing really is. Absolutely, Donna. You know, in the end, that's really what it's all about. You know, we we can't um, cure every everything. Um, we we have a limited time on Earth, um, and the healing element is something though that we have tremendous control over, and that also has to be addressed. Not only because. It, it's a sweet, good feeling, and it's what the human condition is about. But also, it will, in the long run, um, guide us into what is a the true, you know, a psychological, mental, or spiritual dimension of healing. Plus, it will give us better insight into how nature really works. Now, this is an opinion. I believe that we don't live in a dog-eat-dog world. I believe we believe we live in a world where where the world is rooted in kindness. I believe in survival of the wholeness. I've come to these ideas and, and, and conclusions from a change in my orientation, from changing you know where my will is and focusing on that, and then everything changes. That's how you develop um, a, cer- a certain way of understanding health and healing. It, to put in another, in other words, our inner state, how we develop ourselves as human beings, as caring human beings, <clears throat> is not unrelated to how effective our practice of medicine will be. I always tell people, who would you rather go to, um, Doctor Assad from Syria, who is perfectly trained in conventional and functional medicine, or Dr. Moses or Dr. Jesus, whoever, or Dr. Buddha, or Dr. Dalai Lama, who is also trained in conventional medicine and functional medicine. Who do you prefer to go to? And we all choose the Moses and the Jesus and the Dalai Lama and the Buddha, whoever it is to you that has that inner development. And it's not just because we, we were afraid Dr. Assad is by mistake going to give us the wrong pill and may have some nuclear material and that he wants to use on his enemies. 
or that he's a mean guy and who wants to be around a mean guy. And it goes deeper than that because the element of healing um, plays such an important role on how well our patients are going to do. And also it guides the, the practice of medicine. It guides the science that we um, develop the information we gather, how we spin this information, how we develop theories, and ultimately it will change the practice of medicine. So we, we don't want to see Dr. Assad. We, we, we believe that healing um, plays a critical role, and, and, I, and I believe that the doctor of the future has to have an inner development as well in order to be um, a good doctor of, for tomorrow. You know, I think that's a perfect place to end because we were originally going to talk about the triad between the thyroid, the microbiome, and the brain. And we have touched on that all throughout this conversation. But what we've really been doing here is defining what true healing is. And that's really beautiful. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. That was great. I hope I wasn't too esoteric. Uh, well, that's okay because we have a lot of scientific stuff, and I think there's plenty of people that love to hear, you know, that, you know, healing from that point of view too. I'm I'm totally there with you, and every single yeah, way we threw some science in there, and uh, there is a definite connection. I think people, first of all, I'm sure there are many people that will listen to this that have never heard of a stimulation test for thyroid-releasing hormone, and they now can go to their doctor and they can say, I want to take that old-fashioned test. And and the doctor will then start looking up what it was and then figure out how to do it yeah. and, and maybe change That's his right. practice tremendously. Everybody right. has the advice they need to be able to do the four R programs, which you've outlined beautifully in the book. And this yeah. this is really what we're and then this whole spiritual component. That's healing. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. It was great. It was wonderful. I appreciate it. Uh, well, to everyone out there that's been listening to this, I want to thank you for listening to us. Um, if you are new to body ecology, please subscribe to the Body Ecology Living uh, it's iTunes podcast with me, Donna Gates. And feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. <music>